0: From 1941 to 1944, during World War II, the Oxford professor, C.S. Lewis, recorded a series of broadcasts on BBC Radio. The genesis of these programs were a religious director at BBC read Lewis's book, The Problem of Pain and was so captivated by Lewis's view of Christianity that he asked him to record these short radio talks. The, the aim of these talks was to make an apologetic for Christianity. Part of the reason was the world was falling apart. World War I was supposed to be the war that ended all wars and now the entire globe was taken under the curse of World War II, Lewis attempted in these radio talks to make the case for the central truths connected to the Christian faith, and eventually these radio addresses became the best-selling book, Mere Christianity. The title is designed to help you understand what is the basics of Christianity, or what is the mereness Of what it means to be a christian it's considered one of the most influential books in the 20th century i'm told that we have a number of them in our resource area i believe it's even the book of the month in mere christianity lewis wrestles with a number of particular concepts but one in particular that we're going to talk about this morning he wrestles with what do you believe about jesus He identifies that a central tenet of Christianity relates to this question. Who do you think Jesus is? Lewis has a famous quotation. Here it is. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Some people have summarized Lewis's quotation there with this statement that Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. He has to be one of the three. And friend, that's a decision that every single one of us has to make. In fact, you can't be in the position of not deciding. Because to not decide is to, in effect, decide who he is. You, you cannot not decide or ignore his claims, those don't give you an excuse, any more than you not knowing the speed limit on 96th Street gives you an excuse for when you're breaking the law. Police officer pulls you over and you say, well, I don't, didn't even know what the speed limit was. That's not on him, that's on you. You may even disagree with the speed limit. Well, it should be 55, I'm gonna drive what I want. Doesn't matter, the law is the law. The Apostle John wrote the Gospel that we're studying for this very reason. He wants to show you who Jesus is so that you might believe in him. Here's what he said. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Ah, you see, that's the aim of this gospel, and frankly, that's the aim of this message, is to help you understand the claim that Jesus made that he is really the Son of God so that by believing in him, you may have life. Now, John wants us to see this in lots of different ways. If you were here last week, you heard Brad's wonderful sermon about the healing of a lame man at the pool. The... Text ended in verse 17, where John records Jesus' words as saying, My Father is working until now, and I am working. So This opens the door to an ongoing conflict that will begin to emerge in earnest between the religious rulers of the day and Jesus as to who exactly he was. When he says, my father is working until now and I am working, Jesus is opening the door on a major issue, one that will eventually get him killed. And at the core of that issue is, is he a liar? Is he a lunatic? Or is he really Lord? Look at verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. John helps us to know. The trajectory of where this book is headed is all going to revolve around this central idea. It wasn't just that Jesus broke the Sabbath when he healed the man at the pool, but it was that he began to claim my father. Instead of saying our father, Jesus began to claim some sort of exclusivity in terms of his relationship. With the Father. He began making a claim that is central to Christianity, and it was the reason that he was killed. And this claim is the main thought for our text and sermon today. It is this that Jesus is the Son of God who gives life. This claim is what led to the cross. And this claim is what every person who hears this message needs to deal with. What do you think of these words? Jesus is the Son of God who gives life. Now, the text that we're in is extremely important. It's one of the first statements of Jesus regarding who he is, and it also helps us to see what he does. So I want to look at this passage through two essential points, who Jesus is and then what he does, and throughout the course of our journey, I want you to help, I want to help you understand why this is important. So first here, who Jesus is. Verse 18 has set us up pretty well to understand what the issue is. The issue is that Jesus is claiming to be equal with God. And verses 19 to 23 are incredibly important because they identify in very clear fashion claims that Jesus makes about himself. There was a A bishop, Anglican bishop in Liverpool who lived in the 1800s, he said this about this passage that we're in. Nowhere else in the Gospels do we find our Lord making such a formal, systematic, orderly, regular statement of his own unity with the Father, his divine commission and authority, and the proofs of his Messiahship as we find in this discourse. In other words, this passage is really important. If you like to mark it in your Bible, you might want to just kind of put little brackets around this and write important. Now, the whole of Bible is important. Don't get me wrong. Maybe put really important, something of that sort. Now, Jesus makes a number of claims as it relates to his divinity, the fact that he is God. There's four things that we learn in this text. First, Jesus claims to be equal with God. Look at verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, whenever you see this phrase, truly, truly, it is an announcement that what is to follow is extremely important. We'll see it again in the text. Truly, 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 I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. The first claim, under this idea of equality with the Father is that Jesus is saying that he has a unique relationship, he has a unique role, he has unique access to the Father. That's what he says. He says the Son can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the Father doing. So the idea is that Jesus is saying, I see the Father doing things that you don't see. I have access to him because he's my Father that you don't have access to. Jesus is saying that he's an intermediary between earth and heaven. He sees the works of the Father, And as a result, he's in effect saying, I know him in a way that you don't. He's claiming that he is of the same essence of the Father, that he is God in the flesh. The second thing that he says is that whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. So he says, not only do I see the things that the Father is doing, but what the Father does, I do too. Now imagine, if you're in the first century and you're a Pharisee and you hear this carpenter's son named Jesus from Nazareth saying, I see what the Father does and what he does, I do. Can you imagine? The audacity. You'd think he was a lunatic. You'd think he was a liar. Or what if he's actually the real son of God? What Jesus is saying here is that he and the Father are of the same essence and they have a unique relationship and so the actions of the Son are designed to communicate that he knows the Father, that he lives in proximity to the Father and that's why he does the works of the Father. I mean, if you're a a human, you understand this. When you were raised in the home that you were raised in, there are things that you do because of who you're related to. There are ways that you talk, there are nuances. I'll give you a few examples. You probably laugh in a similar manner as the family members that you grew up with. Now, I have been known to not have the most attractive laugh. My children have reminded me of this for many, many years. My laugh is more inhaling than exhaling, so it sounds like this. (laughs) That's how I laugh, right? I think it's a great laugh. I've mastered my laugh. Uh, 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 uh. My kids used to mock me. They're like, Dad, your laugh is awful. But guess who laughs the same way now? Uh, 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 uh. Some of you, the way you sneeze, it reflects how your mom sneezes. Achoo, achoo, achoo. Of you grow up, man. If you're gonna sneeze, you're gonna do it. Like, let's just get it done, right? Let's just blow it out. Or when I was a kid, remember my parents tell me to blow my nose in the Dutch tradition. You blow with all your might. In fact, you gotta get your nostrils to be like. Bleh. So, uh, and that's I think it's a cultural thing because I could be in an airport and I'm like, oh man, I hear a Dutch brother. Where are you, man? <laughs> so, the, so the fact of the matter is that where you live and who you live with affects what you say, what you do. In a laughable way, the sneezing, the blowing of one's nose, and the laughter is an illustration, but Jesus is making a really serious point, and he's saying this, I see God in a way that you don't. I do things that I do because I know him, and you don't know him like I do. It's an unbelievable statement. John was already making this case in John chapter 1 when he said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So if you're here today, you're not yet a Christian, you need to know that one of the central tenets of the Christian faith is that we believe that Jesus of Nazareth wasn't just man, he was the very Son of God. Second thing, Jesus is loved by the Father. Look at verse 20. For the Father loves the Son, and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. Now notice, he says here, the Father loves the Son. Central to what Christianity is, is the essence of love. The Bible tells us the word of love God, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. And the reason is because the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the triune Godhead operate in love for one another. The Father loves the Son. That's what the text says. And the Son loves the Father. The Father loves the Spirit. The Spirit loves the Father. This love that they have for one another is how, in the midst of their diversity, because they have different roles, they maintain their unity. The Bible tells us that God so loved the world that he sent his only son. So the main expression of what it means to know Jesus is to love God and to love others. One of the reasons that unity in the midst of diversity for every church ought to mark its community, that in the midst of all of our differences, there's a love that brings us together, is because this is the very essence of what God is like. Love is at the center of what it means to be a Christian. So, follower of Jesus, can I just ask you, how'd the love thing go this last week? And how you resolved conflict in the words that you chose, in your patience level? If I were to ask the people at work, are you marked by a loving attitude? Because you know, don't you, that the entire gravitational pull of our culture is heading the other direction, how people drive, what they post on social media, how they talk to one another, what they throw out in a text, it's all headed the other direction, and followers of Jesus are meant to emulate something very real but very powerful, central to the heart of God in the context of love. Then Jesus says this, a remarkable statement and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. So just understand what Jesus is saying here. I see the Father in a way that you don't. I do the works that my Father does that you don't. I have a loving relationship with the Father that is unusual, and I'm gonna do greater things than these so that you can stand in awe. (laughs) He's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's straight up the Lord That there aren't many options. There's just three. It's even better. He is sovereign in his decision to give life by his will. Verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son gives life to whom he will. Again, imagine Jesus saying these things. Imagine a little group of religious leaders, and Jesus says, as the Father raises the dead and gives life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Jesus is connecting the Father's power to raise the dead, and Jesus is saying, I have the same power and authority to raise the dead. Now, in a few months, we'll get to John chapter 11. And in that chapter, Jesus will stand at the tomb of Lazarus, and he will say, Lazarus, come forth, and a dead man is going to walk out. And in that moment, the Pharisees say to one another, we have to kill him now. We have to kill him. Why? Because if he says this and does this, we have a huge issue. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. And that reality could not be withstood in the context of their belief regarding who they were and who he was, and so the die was cast, so to speak, for the crucifixion of Jesus. But this word that Jesus says here doesn't just relate to the power of resurrection, at Lazarus' tomb or, as we'll see in a moment, the resurrection of the dead at the end of the age, it also relates even now that the power that Jesus possesses is to give new spiritual life to those who trust him. He's able to create a resurrecting sort of experience in your life when you are taken out of the deadness of your spiritual life and you are now brought into new life in accordance with a relationship with Jesus. In other words, John says this in chapter 3, verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. It's not just in the future, it's right now. So he has the ability to give life. It's important if you're here today and you're not yet a believer, you're not yet a Christian because you need to know that the central message of Christianity is not just what happens to you when you die, but it means that even right now, your life can be radically changed when God takes care of the thing that you can't get to, namely a heart that's set on the wrong things. He gives life. Fourth, this text tells us that Jesus possesses the authority of judgment. Look at verse 22. The Father judges no one. I mean, this is just, can you believe that Jesus is saying this? I mean, just, just feel the weight of his words. He says, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. <laughs> I mean, in the Old Testament, the Father, God was the judge of all mankind. Why? Because he's the creator it's up to God to decide what is right and what is wrong. But now Jesus is saying, no, the Father has given that authority to me. Why? Because the dividing line of judgment is going to relate to who do you say Jesus is. He gives that authority to the Son. He sends him so that Jesus is not only the means of salvation, but he's also Think of this, he's the person before whom all the world will stand, and in that moment we will all have to give an account with what we have done with Jesus. On that day, it matters. Do you think he's a liar? Do you think he's a lunatic? Or do you think he's Lord? On that day, every human being will clearly know who he is, but the question is whether or not you will know him. He'll know every part of you, but the question is whether or not you'll be covered by his grace, or in that moment, listen carefully, you will be under the judgment of God through the gaze of the King of kings and Lord of lords who all your life you rejected, and then you stand before him and realize, I have made a terrible mistake. He really is the son of God, but in that moment, there will be no ability to change your mind. That time is now, which is why John writes this gospel. He wants to convince you that Jesus is the Son of God. He wants you to know that he really is the Christ. He wants you to know that he really came and died for our sins. He wants you to know that he really hung on a cross. He wants you to know that there really is an opportunity for forgiveness. He wants you to know that now is the time for you to believe. Now is the time you, for you to receive. Now is the day for you to decide. He's not a liar, he's not a lunatic. Yes, he is the Lord, he is my Lord. That's why this gospel was written. That's why it's there. And if you're a follower of Jesus and if you have put your trust in that truth, this gospel should make your heart sing for you to say, yes, he's Lord. That's who Jesus is. Here's the second thing. What does Jesus do? In verse 24, we find another truly, truly statement. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He has not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So what does Jesus do? He passes people. He moves them from death to life. And this idea is not just in the future. That's true in the future. It's true even now. Hear these words. I'm going to read them to you slowly. They're really important. He does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. Because of who Jesus is and because of what he has done, he has the power and authority to deliver people from eternal judgment and to move them from death to life. And it doesn't relate just to the future, but it relates to something that happens even now. Here's how it works. When you become a Christian, God's grace is applied to you so that not only do you have hope for the future, so you know what happens, where you go, when you die, but you have hope even now. That Jesus doesn't just change your eternal destiny, he changes your life immediately. Does it mean that you're perfect? Does it mean that you don't ever sin anymore? But it means that the fundamental issue of who am I and what is my life about and how do I relate to my Creator has been settled because you have put your trust in the person and work of Jesus. And when that happens, He moves people from death to life. You could ask a friend of yours who's a Christian, tell me the moment that that happened to you, and they'll be able to tell you. We all have a different story. Some of us, it's a, like a major moment, so it's more, of a, some it's more of a process, but every Christian can tell you the story. This is what happened. I understood that I was a sinner. I knew that I needed to receive Jesus, and some people were at age 60, some 40, some 20, some 10, some five, some four-year-olds, three, three-year-olds. It's remarkable how the, the gospel comes and it penetrates the heart for us to be able to realize who we are and who Jesus is, and when that message is received, We're moved from death to life. Notice verse 25, another truly, truly statement. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. Notice, Jesus is not talking about something that's just in the future. He's saying there is something in the future, but there's something happening even now. Notice, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So he's using resurrection sort of language and he's saying there's a moment when dead people hear the voice of God, Lazarus being one in John chapter 11. At the end of the ages, all of the dead who will be raised again, we'll come to that in a moment, But Jesus is more specifically talking about the fact that there are spiritually dead people who they hear the voice of the Son of God, and in hearing, they live. What does that mean? It means that you hear the very words of Jesus as communicated through the word, through his word, and when you hear, they land on your heart, and previously, you thought, that's a bunch of hogwash. And then you hear it again, and you're like, I actually think I believe this. Actually, The Bible is true, Jesus really is the Son of God, and in hearing, you believe, and in believing, you live. And you need to know, friend, that when that happens to somebody, it is because the spirit of the risen Christ has come upon you, and your heart is uniquely drawn to see and believe, and that's how people become Christians. And I just wonder if that might not happen for a few of you this morning. The Bible says that the dead hear the voice of the Son of God, and as a result, something within them says, that's true. The disciples, in Luke 24, after Jesus was raised from the dead, they were walking along a road one day, Jesus appeared to them, he didn't know who he was, he started explaining the Old Testament scriptures to them, and when he left, the disciples said this, Were not our hearts burning within us? Let me tell you what happens when you start to hear the word. It's like something goes into your brain, into your head, and your heart is like, I think I'm leaning into this, not leaning away. Maybe you find that even now as I'm talking to you about the things, the claims of Christ, that there's this strange sort of lean-in quality that's happening to you. That's, that's what the Bible is talking about. Or take Peter's sermon in Acts chapter two. He preached a sermon, and the Bible says that when he told them about Jesus, they were, quote, cut to the heart. Like it landed on them, and they were like, what do we do? How should we respond? Book of Hebrews in the New Testament, says that the Bible is living and active, meaning the declaration of the word, even sometimes the reading of the word, has power to it. Do you know what Tim said when he began to read the scripture? This is a powerful passage. <laughs> Amen it is. Why is it powerful? Because it is the very words of Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, do you remember what it was like when your heart burned for the word? Remember the moment when you heard the gospel, the good news that you were a sinner and Jesus died for your sins and there was something within you that was just compelling you to believe? Can I ask you, does that seem like a millennia ago? Like your heart's gotten so used to the gospel, so used to the good news, that it takes a lot to warm you up to the things of God. Maybe some of you need to start your morning tomorrow by simply saying this, God, I need a heart that is set on you again, help me. Doesn't mean that you've lost your salvation, doesn't mean that you're not a Christian anymore, but what it does mean is that you've become so familiar with the claims of Jesus, you've lost the awe of Jesus. Might begin by just even at the end of our service today and thanking Jesus for the work that he's done. Maybe even this sermon is helping just to sort of rekindle some coals of affection that are there but have grown a bit cold. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to also have life in himself. That's so remarkable that Jesus says Again, he's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. Verse 27, and as he has given him authority to execute judgment, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. This word son of man in in our culture would be like, he's the commander in chief, it's got power connected to it. That word is related to one who is a conquering king from Daniel, the book of Daniel. And then he says, verse 28, another remarkable statement. Again, just put yourself there and imagine Jesus saying for the first time these words, do not marvel at this. He's saying unbelievable things, and they're saying to him, he says to them, don't marvel at this. Why? For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. He means my voice. There's this coming a day when all who are in the tombs will hear my voice, and they will come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, what does this mean? It does not mean, first of all, that we are redeemed by our works, like Those who have done good because they've done good things, therefore they're going to come to life. But what Jesus is saying here is this, and it's important, that when you understand the power of who he is, when you understand the redemption of what he has done for us, that those who have received him will then have lives that reflect the substance of what it is that Jesus is and what it is that he has done. In other words, there will be a connection between what we believe and what we do. So let me warn those of you who've grown up in Christian circles all your life who know the content of the gospel, if your life is going like this, so the gospel's here in terms of its context, and here's the obedience of your life, so your morals, your ethics, and if the gospel's going this way and you're going that way, friend, let me speak bluntly and plainly to you, I don't care what you say you know, if it doesn't work, you don't know what you think you know. Because if you know what you know, this wouldn't be happening. The Bible says that your works verify that your belief is indeed genuine. doesn't mean that you're perfect. doesn't mean you don't blow it royally, but it means that the consistent pattern of your life isn't going like this. Jesus isn't going this way, and you're going this way. Meanwhile, you can't be like going this direction and say, I believe in him, I believe in him, I believe in him. If you believe in him, your life doesn't go like this. It goes like this. And so that ought to scare some of you who are flirting around with things that are drawing you the opposite direction. You need to sever that and repent of that, why? Because that doesn't fit with what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Don't just approach your temptations this week as though they are an option for you to battle against them. Take a firm stand and say, this doesn't fit with what it means to love the king of kings. I will not do this. I will not say this. I will not act this way. I won't look at this. Why? Because my king is Christ. He's not a liar. He's not a lunatic. He's Lord. Well, if he's Lord, then we need to live like it. Well, if you're a, person who's not yet a Christian, the question is, you have to decide who he is. And on the table are simply the claims of Jesus in John chapter 5. And friend, I will tell you, one day you're going to stand before him, and the time to reckon with who he is is now. Because it says in this text, and I'm just telling you what the Bible says, that those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. In other words, everyone lives again. The trouble is, is we don't all live in the same place. Resurrection of life, new heaven and new earth with Jesus, resurrection of judgment where mankind get what they deserve because of their lifelong rejection of saying, he's not Lord, he's a liar and you call Jesus a liar for 80 years of your life, and you stand before him, that is not a good day. You claim he's a lunatic, and you stand before him, and Jesus says, 85 years, you called me a lunatic. And in that moment, Jesus knows all about you, everything that you've done. He knows every wrong motive, he knows it all. There's no need to have testimony. Jesus already has the file. He's already hacked into everything of your heart. He knows it all. And the question on that day isn't going to be, what do you think of him now? You'll know who he is. And the reason why John writes this gospel is to prepare you for that day. He says, I write these things to you so that you may believe that he's the Son of God, because you don't want to be standing in front of him, denying it all your life, and suddenly now, oh, now I know you're the Son of God, In that moment it'll be too late. And so the invitation for you is if what I'm saying is resonating within your heart, if any of your heart is like, I'm leaning into this and not away, then why not believe today? Why not come to Jesus today? Why not simply say in your heart, Lord, I believe that you are the Son of God, and I want you to come and to take over my life. I trust you for the forgiveness of my sins, and if you believe in that and are trusting in that, that that is how people move from death to life. If you're a Christian, that's the essence of what you believe. That's the mereness of Christianity, and you ought to thank God that you're forgiven. You ought to never forget what Jesus saved you from, and you ought to tell people around you of the power of what that life in Christ means. Because you've decided he's not a liar. He's not a lunatic. Oh my goodness. Jesus of Nazareth, who hung on a cross, he is my Lord. And that is the essence of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Lord Jesus, right now, help those who know you to feel both joy of what it means to live because of you, and also a sense of sobriety, of deciding I need to follow Christ more closely. And Lord, for those today who are not yet Christians, would you make them today the kind of people whose hearts would be open to what it is that they're hearing? Thank you for the kindness of your word that you have told us what eternal life is all about. And Lord, would you help this word today to land on hearts that are more inclined to listen than not? Would you kindly apply your word as it needs to be applied in our lives, that we might even today have some who would say, on this day in May, was the moment when I confessed Christ Jesus as Lord. Let me pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.